The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, good morning once again, church. Uh, I want to encourage you to open your copy of God's Word and join me in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to take a break from Ephesians for a week. And while you're turning there, a few weeks ago uh, in staff meeting, Pastor Scott looked to Ethan and I and recognizing the reality of every sickness known to man going around told us, listen, Make sure you have something ready because it could come for any of us at any time. So we kind of had some backup sermons prepared. And a few weeks back, I thought I was going to have to fill in for him, but he was feeling better. Unfortunately, a virus uh, got Pastor Scott, so he's not feeling well. He's beginning to feel better, and he's kind of getting back on the road to recovery a little bit. I'm looking at Abby, and she's just kind of giving me a blank look a little bit. Okay, so continue to pray for him as he kind of gets back in the routine of everything. Um, But I have the privilege of sharing with you from Philippians chapter 2, and I share that story with you to tell you about God's grace towards us here today. Um, I knew that if anything happened, I would be preaching from Philippians 2. This is one of my favorite texts in scripture. Um, I've had the opportunity to study it a lot in school and for a couple other opportunities to teach. And so a few weeks back, I knew that if anything happened, I would teach from Philippians 2. And on Friday, we made the call and recognized that it would be this week that I'd be sharing. And so I'm feeling a little stressed out because I'm a type of person I like to know in advance. Like I've got, I've tried to have my life and lessons and everything planned out months in advance. And of course, that doesn't always go according to plan like this weekend. Hey, you've got two days to deliver a sermon on Sunday morning, but that's okay. So I'm I'm stressing out and the Lord is reminding me to live in his power right now. So I say, all right, Lord, I, I give this to you. So I start to prepare for Sunday school to teach you Sunday school class. And I open up the gospel project. So if you, any of you, or in a gospel project class, you'll know that this morning in Sunday school, we read from Acts chapter 15, and that's the start of the Philippian church. And the reason why that's so incredible is because that's also what we're going to talk about in the service today, that God and his sovereignty, when I try to plan my life months in advance and things get in the way, nothing gets in the way of God's plan. And he saw fit for us here today as a church to have continuity just so close in Sunday school and in the sermon. So maybe a little bit of what you hear is like, oh, I heard that in Sunday school, and that's great. Uh, I want you to pick up on that. But we're going to be learning from Philippians 2, and I believe that God has ordained for this to happen in exactly the way that he has seen fit. So knowing that God is sovereign, that he has a plan for us, and that he loves us, let's dive into the text and see, uh, let's look to Christ and behold his glory today. So this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a copy of God's word, it'll be up on the screens for you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Uh, much like we do every week, I want to walk through these verses in order, and I kind of want to separate them out into two sections. The first part is understanding that we need to live humbly for a greater name. In this passage, Paul's going to give a command or his expectations of the church at Philippi that they should be unified, have one mind, one idea, one common goal, one common purpose in everything that they do. He gives the command first, and then later he's going to give the reason why. So let's look at the command first. Paul writes these words focusing on unity. In verses 1 and 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He emphasizes the unity of the church around this common mission of the gospel and says, listen, don't be chasing after your own things, but have one common goal in mind. When Paul writes these words, he's not writing to some super church with thousands of people, but instead he has people in mind because he was there at the start of the church. In Acts 15, Luke records the background of the church when Paul planted it. Uh, Paul sought to go to Asia to preach the gospel. And maybe we talked about this in Sunday school. But in essence, what happens is Paul wants to continue to spread the gospel. And so he thinks, man, it's going to be a good idea if I go to this region of Asia. So he starts to go that way. And the Bible doesn't say particularly how, but it says in the spirit, God's kind of like, no, not, not that way, Paul. He's like, all right, okay. So he kind of backs up and says, all right, well, I'll go another direction. Let me go over here. They need the gospel. So he starts to go that direction and God stops him again. He says, okay, and takes a step back, goes another direction, and God stops him again. So he just stays put. He says, all right, Lord, I will wait on your leading. So he is resting as he waits for what God has for him next, and he falls asleep, and he has a dream of a Macedonian coming up to him and saying, come to me. We, we need your help, in essence. So that was God's way of leading him to Macedonia. So he enters into the region and enters into the city of Philippi. And there he encountered the original members of the church that he's writing to in this letter, that he would have in mind as he wrote these words. So we talked about them in Sunday school, but first is Lydia. Now, usually Paul would begin his missionary work by going into a synagogue and meeting with the Jewish people there. The Jewish people would have a background in the Old Testament, so it was a really easy connection point because Paul, who was an expert in the Old Testament and had been brought to life through his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, would have this commonality with them, and he could point them to Jesus through the Old Testament. Just an easy place to start. Then, once the Jews that God would have to believe would believe, they would go after the Gentiles and move into the community. As he moved into Philippi, going after his tried-and-true game plan, there wasn't a synagogue in the city. There was nowhere for him to meet. So he began to just pray, walking through the town, and came across Lydia. There's a riverside with a group of women praying together. And the scriptures describe her as a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now keep in mind that the Bible describes her as a worshiper of God before her actual conversion when she trusts in Christ and is saved from her sins. She's a seller of purple goods, which means that she's well off. So if we really think about the description that's given us about Lydia, by no means would anyone necessarily look at her and instantly think that she would need saved. Because let's talk about it for a second. She's well off. I mean, she's got a nice house at least. I mean, selling purple goods doesn't mean that you're in any financial trouble at this time. And the Bible says she's a worshiper of God. So from the outside, it probably looks like she has it all together. Like she has everything she needs financially. She's set up. She, she's a worshiper of God. So spiritually, I mean, she, she may even talk about God in her speech, but there's still something missing. And before we go any farther, I, I think we need to be careful here because this is a reality of the day and age in which we live in. And especially for us as Abner Creek, something I just want to guard you against and, and remind you of as we're planted where we are. 
God has a purpose for our geographic location here in South Carolina. He has a purpose for the communities coming up around us. But we have to be careful to think that just because maybe the communities that are being built around us, these subdivisions are middle class, that these people don't need the gospel. Or or we need to guard ourselves against just because we are in the heart of the Bible Belt and people know a lot more Bible than maybe elsewhere in America that they're, they're good, they're set. Just because those things are true does not mean that they have had saving faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that they've believed on Jesus. Maybe, maybe for us personally, we think we can trace it back to a prayer that we prayed where we repeated some words and we felt like it was a special moment and then our lives haven't reflected it since. Maybe personally for us, we, we look back to our baptism And again, we were dunked in water. That was a significant moment when we were six or seven. But maybe after that, we just haven't thought about God twice. Because those things alone aren't enough to save us. And I've encountered it over and over. So one of the realities of being a 23-year-old reverend, which is probably the most boring term you can be as a 23-year-old, is that whenever anyone finds out I work at a church, I get their best face immediately. So, so you know, uh, the other day I was uh, getting an oil change with the car, and I was reading, kind of preparing for some lessons that we've got going on tonight at the Connection for the Youth. So I had my Bible out, and I was working on my computer in the waiting area. And as soon as someone realized that I was reading my Bible, they became like a different person almost. Suddenly, like things that they didn't think was safe to say, they started saying. Now, in this case, it was good. In this case, they started praising the Lord for the things that were going on and some things that happened in their life. But most of the time, what happens, what I'm experiencing is that as soon as someone finds out that I'm a pastor of any sort, I don't really tell them I'm a student pastor because then I lose credibility. But if they find out I'm a pastor of any sort, they're like, pastor, hey, praise God, hallelujah, amen, what's going on? Hey, God is so good, I'm so blessed. When maybe cuss words were coming out of their mouth just a few minutes before. And there's just this reality of the world that we live in where we think that just because we prayed a prayer, that just because we were baptized, just because these things are true, regardless of how we're living right now, we're saved. Just because our parents grew up in church and they brought us to church every Sunday, just because we grow up in the Bible Belt, just because we live in South Carolina. But listen, those things are not enough to save us. And we see that with Lydia right off the bat. We need saving faith in Jesus Christ to save us. It's not enough on its own just to have the lingo down, the Christian talk down. So Paul shares the gospel with Lydia and with the group of women who had gathered there in that day. And the Lord opens her heart to believe. So she becomes a believer and invites Paul to stay with her and to continue to do ministry in the community. So Paul does that. A little time later, we meet the next person that he probably had in mind as he wrote. This was a demon-possessed girl, a slave girl. Now, she had the ability to tell the future. This demon gave her the ability to do that. And she had two slave masters that would receive the benefits of her fortune-telling. I mean, they were making bank. They were really well off. Well, for days, this slave girl follows Paul and those with him around saying, these are servants of the Most High God who come to proclaim salvation to you. Now, certainly, she's not wrong in that. However, this happens for days. Now, keep in mind, this isn't like just some talking. This is proclaiming. This is yelling, announcing to everyone around them. So imagine, if you will, for days, you have someone walking around saying who you are. I mean, what if a little kid followed me around and said, this is Matt Hall, student pastor of Abner Creek Baptist Church, and did not stop saying that for days. That's what's going on here. And scripture tells us something interesting. It kind of makes me laugh when I think about it. It literally says that Paul was greatly annoyed. 
which is not really a stretch of the imagination here. So Paul is so annoyed that finally he has enough. He turns around and he says, demon, come out of her this very hour in the name of Jesus Christ. And the demon's like, all right, I'm out and is gone. Paul was so annoyed that in the name of Jesus and the authority that Jesus had given him, he basically said, get out. And the demon's like, all right, I'm gone. No worries. And the slave girl becomes saved. I mean, what a testimony. I mean, could you imagine like going into church? Like there's the one that no one can top. Yeah, I used to be demon possessed and God, and, and God had Paul say, hey, shut up. And then I was saved. It was really kind of cool. All right. So that's the slave girl's testimony. But compare that to Lydia. Lydia was the seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. And now we've got the exact opposite of that. We've got someone who doesn't even have their freedom. Someone who's every bit of their income goes to those who own them, who is demon possessed, which is really the exact opposite of a worshiper of God, possessed by the enemy. But God saves both of them. The same gospel of Jesus Christ saves both of them. There's no difference. And listen to me, church, the gospel is for everyone. There's no limitation on who can repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And we have to guard ourselves against believing that that the gospel is just for white middle-class Americans or the gospel is just for those who live in the United States of America. The gospel is just for those who aren't Muslim. The gospel is just for those who don't have X, Y, and Z faith, who don't practice X, Y, and Z lifestyle. The gospel is for everyone. We don't compromise what we believe, what the Bible teaches to be true, but we also don't limit who hears the proclamation of the good news. And we see this in the slave girl. So there's Lydia, there's the slave girl, and then in the last part of the chapter, we meet the final character, the Philippian jailer. Now, if you're like me, I grew up in church, so I heard this story many, many times, but there's a lot of undertones going on in the story that kind of add to what's actually going on. So the bosses of the slave girl, they're upset because they just lost their income. So they come up with false allegations that Paul and the people with him were trying to betray Caesar and make a rebellion. So the Roman authorities aren't having any of that. They're going to stomp that rebellion before it even starts. So they strip Paul and those with him and beat him, beat him over the back until he's bloody, and then lock him in prison and have a jailer sit over him. So Paul and Silas and the others, they're in chains, and they begin singing and praying and thanking God for what had happened, which seems odd, but that's what they do. Because their trust in God was not in their circumstances. The jailers, uh, the jailers around them, the other prisoners around them, they hear what's going on. And they're amazed at what's happening. It seems that the jailer fell asleep because an earthquake happens. And scripture says that the jailer woke. So think about this. We talked about this in Sunday school. If you were in youth Sunday school, the jailer had one job. One job. It was a pretty easy job. It'd be a job I would kind of want. The prisoners were in chains and the prisoners were behind a closed door locked up. And all they had to do was make sure they didn't escape. That's a simple job. I mean, the job description is can watch people to make sure they're still there. Like that's, the, that's job requirements, all right? So this jailer, he's got one job. He falls asleep on it. An earthquake happens. God has the chains break. The doors open. And all the jailers are about to walk out. The, the jailer wakes up and he recognizes that they're about to escape and recognizes that he's as good as dead if the authorities catch him and know that all his prisoners escape. So he's about to fall on his sword. And in that moment, Paul and Silas hold this, prisoner's, uh, this jailer's life in their hands. They can choose to walk out the door with the freedom that God had given them. And this jailer is gone. He's dead. Or they can stay Against all odds, they're one shot to escape. They just stay in the prison, and that's what they do. This man is so overcome by their willingness to stay, to save his life, that he asks them, what must I do to be saved? 
and he and his whole household come to faith in Jesus Christ that day. So you have the Lydia, the seller of purple goods, the slave girl, the exact opposite of Lydia by every means, and the Philippian jailer who isn't even a Jew, who's a Gentile watching over them. Like the gospel is not limited in who it's for. And we see this in just the three families. So as Paul is writing this, as Paul is writing, be unified, he's thinking of these people. He's thinking of Lydia who was trying to seek the Lord the best way that she knew how and God brought him in to, say, to share the gospel with her. He's thinking of the slave girl that he told the demon to shut up and get out and the demon was gone and she was saved. He was thinking of the Philippian jailer who was seconds away from taking his own life, but in that moment, God gave him life. These are the people that he's thinking of. It's not just some ethereal, hey guys, uh, I know you're a church, you're in Philippi, Try to have like the same mission. Come up with a mission statement and just kind of go with it. No, he knows. He spent time planting this church. God had him unite with these people for a time. So he writes to people who are dear to him, have the same mind, be unified, have the same goal. So then in verses three through 11, Paul's gonna give two commands. He's gonna give one great big reason why. So we continue to walk through this first part of the command. In verses three through five, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In those verses, there's a literary structure called a chiasmus. And I feel like, and one of the times that God has given me the opportunity to preach, we've talked about a chiasmus before, but basically think of it like an Oreo sandwich, okay? So you've got like the cookie on both sides, and then we don't eat single stuff because single stuff are dumb, but you got the double stuff cream in the middle because double stuff's the only Oreo. So you've got the two same thoughts on the outside and then you have the two same thoughts on the inside. So look at these verses with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And that's making a name for ourselves. So that's the first part. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And that's to make God's name great. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we have this literary structure going on. And what it is is this tension that Paul brings out between making our name great and making God's name great. And this isn't the first time it comes up in Scripture. This is the tension that is the reality for all of us. And we see this especially in the characters of Scripture. In fact, if you talk about the situation that required Jesus in the first place to follow man, there is this tension already. When in Genesis 3, the serpent tempted Eve with the fruit, saying that if she ate it, she would be like God. In that moment, Eve had a choice. She can make God's name great and refuse the fruit, but submit to what God had commanded her. Or she could take the fruit, and if the serpent was telling the truth, be like God, and she can make her own name great. So in Genesis 3, this, this, um, this uh, opposition between making God's name great and making our name great is already showing up. It's what got us in trouble in the first place. And we know that Eve ate the fruit, gave it to Adam. He ate the fruit because they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be like God. That was at the heart of the temptation behind it. So if you fast forward a little bit in Genesis, the world's starting to spiral kind of out of control because sin is running rampant. God had made a promise to redeem his people, but there's this tension. How's God going to do this? Ultimately, in Genesis chapter 11, we have the Tower of Babel. And we see that creation had repopulated after the flood, after God had redeemed Noah and his family, but the sin's still there. And so the people come together as they speak one tongue, and they have conspired together to make a name for themselves. 
As they think about this structure that they want to build that goes to heaven, the heart behind it is seen in Genesis 11, verse 4. They say, come, let us make a name for ourselves. This is literally what they say. We're going to reach to God. God's not that powerful. We'll build this really big tower, and it's going to reach to God, and then we will be known. And they were known, just not for that, because the Lord stepped in and confused their languages and spread them out. But the tension's not gone there. Because in the very next chapter, God calls a man named Abram and says that he is going to bless all the nations through his offspring. And when God commissions Abram out of nowhere, the first mention of him is in Genesis 12, 2, and God says to Abram, I will bless you and I will make your name great. Well, that seems interesting. And through Abram, we see that God's name is actually made great. Abraham, uh, Abram became Abraham, his covenant name, and believed in God as shown by his obedience. And by obeying, Abraham made much of God's name because he was a picture of the Lord's salvation that would come. The theme continues through scripture. You can see it in, in the Proverbs. Think about the, the verse that maybe we quote often, pride comes before the fall, all right? There, there's this idea that when we try to muster ourselves up and make our names great, inevitably, wisdom says that we will be humbled after that. We see in scripture, and this is quoted many times in the New Testament from Proverbs, that God stands against the proud but will exalt the humble. This theme continues, and ultimately, we see it reach its peak in Jesus, the one who scripture, all of it points to, and in this moment in the garden when he's under intense pressure because he knew what was about to happen, he knew that the Father's plan was for him to give up his life on the cross, taking the sins of all who would believe upon himself, to take that extreme punishment when Jesus is faced with the tension between going through with the Father's will and submitting to it or not. In the garden as he prays, he says, not my will, but yours be done. In this ultimate moment, Jesus chooses to exalt the name of the Father. And to see this in the hymn that Paul talks about, but it's this tension. And the reality is that the sin that every single one of us is guilty of, that everything boils down to is trying to make a name for ourselves. Because for, our, for the most part, I haven't met a lot of people who don't recognize their guilt or that something is wrong. I think everyone would agree that something is wrong with the world, and, and a lot of times people would agree that there's something wrong inside of them. And the question ultimately is, how do we make everything right? How can we be saved? How can everything be good again? And so this tension in our lives enters in of, well, I want to I be saved. Like, I want to make everything right. And we have this tension between trying to make everything right in our own power or trying to lay down our lives and trust in God and in His plan. That's what everything comes down to. Ultimately, our sins can be simplified into twisting the gifts of God and trying to make ourselves look good without him. Taking the things that he has given us, and instead of giving the praise to his name, we want to take those gifts and we want to make ourselves look good. Paul made this very argument in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. He said, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They worshiped and served what God had given, made, and created instead of the one who created it as it was designed to be. And when we try to make our name for ourselves, it is absolutely impossible to live unified. Imagine if one Sunday, practice for the worship team looked like everyone playing their favorite song. What if Ethan said, all right, this Sunday, 
we're going to have one song. And that one song, we're all going to play our favorite song at the same time. So maybe someone will be playing like Freebird up here because you got to take the opportunity to play Freebird when you can. Maybe someone else will be playing Stairway to Heaven. I don't know what's going on. Maybe someone else is singing I Can Only Imagine in the corner. I don't know what's happening, but everyone is not of the same mind, not of the same accord. They're all doing their own thing. It would be a train wreck. You wouldn't know what was going on. But Paul says that when we stop making a name for ourselves, so just like in that example, if, if they didn't take the opportunity to make a name for themselves, which they don't, If they sought to make the name of God great, that's how we can live unified. But here's the deal. I see this in myself as well. We're all guilty of trying to make our own name great. And when I thought about this, I think there's kind of three ways that come out that we try to make our name great. This isn't the only three ways, but I just want to think through these together. One of the ways that we show that we're trying to make our own name great is that we think a task is below us. We think a task is below us. And so what happens is maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, whatever it is, one way that we know that we're not living unified is by hearing, hey, can you set up some chairs for this event? And you think, man, I'm, I am the student pastor of Abner Creek Baptist Church. Who are you to ask me to set up chairs for the dinner coming up next week? And suddenly a task is below me. That's not living unified. That's trying to make my name look great because my name is Matt Hall and I will not be known for setting up chairs because the next thing I know, I'm setting up chairs for everything. I'm not gonna do that. Do you see how there's that making a name for myself? That's what's going on there. It quickly becomes that we think someone or some group of people is below us as well because if we think a task is below us, then we must think that there's someone who can do that task. If the task is below us, then whoever we think can do that task is below us as well because we view ourselves above them. Well, that's a lowly task. This person should do that. And that's one way that we don't live unified. The second way that we can see ourselves making a name for ourselves is we outdo one another in showing off. So here's what's kind of going on behind this one. And this is a funny example. And um, growing up in West Virginia, uh, and y'all do it here too, but growing up in West Virginia, one of the things that my dad would like to do is we would like to go fishing a lot. And so we would go, I remember as a kid, like four or five years old, I would go with my grandfather and we would all go down the lake and we would go fishing. And every time I would tell, come back and tell my mom and my grandma the size fish I caught, it would be really easy for make, me to make the story better by trying to go one bigger. So maybe the first time I tell the story, the fish was this big, Right? I just said it was a pretty, it was a pretty modest fish. But by a week down the road, the fish was about the size of a shark, all right? And I caught a shark that week in the lake. You wouldn't believe it, but there was a shark in the lake, okay? That's one way that we show off. Maybe during deer season, this can happen to you guys. I'm going to pick on you one more time. But you know, you got, you got a four-point buck. Oh, that's not, I got a six-point one time, an eight-point. And the next thing you know, someone's got like a 70-point buck somehow from some mutant deer that's out in the woods. I don't even know how that happens. There's no way it's real. But we try to outdo one another. And and it's not just limited to hunting and fishing, of course, but maybe you've been around someone where you're just trying to share about an experience that happened to you and they cannot let the conversation go without trying to one-up you. Maybe you've kind of felt that tension in your heart before because I've caught myself doing it before where someone's told a story and then I've just had this one, well, well, you think that's bad. Let me tell you about this because I'm trying to make a name for myself. I'm not concerned with what happened to that person. I want to make myself look good. And there's one more way that I thought about. And again, it's not limited to this, but we always try to justify ourselves. And this is a big one. I wouldn't have done this sin if someone wouldn't have made me do it. You just don't understand. If they wouldn't have looked at me that way, I never would have done this. 
It's this constant trying to justify our sin, the ways that we mess up, that we don't follow the Lord by trying to place the blame on someone else because we want our name to look great. And that's regardless of age. I mean, those of you with kids, maybe you know about it probably better than I do. You go in, did you break the vase? Well, if she hadn't gotten the ball out in the first place, we never would have been throwing it and the vase never would have been broken. So maybe I threw it and hit the vase, but you should really be punishing her because that was her fault. It happens all the time. And it just gets worse as we get older because it disguises itself a little bit. But listen to me, I bring these ways up simply because we shouldn't be making a name for ourselves. And to be completely honest, if we really examined ourselves and thought about the ways that we make a name for ourselves, it's miserable. It's miserable because we make this false persona of ourselves like we've got it all together. Or, or maybe we're just constantly in everything, wanting the attention on ourselves and it's exhausting because we're striving over and over and over to make our name great, to make much of ourselves. And that's not the way that God designed you to work. That's not the way that God wired you. So as Paul's writing this, he's saying, be of the same mind. This is when we strive together, when we flourish all together, and when life is best, when we make much of God. And he's not just writing it to a congregation he doesn't know. He says, Lydia, don't use your position just to make yourself wealthier, but help out the slave girl and the jailer who have nothing and the jailer who lost his job. Slave girl, don't seek to take advantage of others, but serve your fellow members as God has gifted you. And, and jailer, Treat Lydia and the slave girl like they were your family. They have no one else. Take care of them. Help them. Bring them into your household. Don't seek to make your name great, but live in unity. That's Paul's command. But then Paul does something incredible, and that's the second part of the sermon. He gives an example of living for a greater name. So in the next verses, we're going to look at the example of living for a greater name. And this starts in verse 6. And here's the beauty of this passage that our English translation doesn't really have a good way to bring out. Paul is so moved by what Christ has done on the cross for us. He is so moved by the example of Jesus that he goes from giving a command into a song declaring the beauty of the gospel. He breaks into song really mid-thought. He, he goes from commanding them, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and boom, he's into a song because the gospel is beautiful to him. Paul portrays the gospel. He couldn't keep it to himself, so he just starts to sing. Like, Jesus was equal with God. He had everything, all the perks of being God, and emptied himself and became a human with us. And not only that, he died. And not only that, he died. He died the worst death imaginable for you and for me. And now he lives again and God has given him a name above all. And Paul thinks this is the most beautiful thing he's ever heard and makes it into this amazing song that we hold on to today. Because the picture starts with Jesus. And he begins by stating that he existed in the form of God. That Jesus is God. He had the highest authority in the universe at the right hand of the Father. He's the greatest who ever was and ever will be. He existed in the form of God. Yet, to the glory of the Father, he submitted himself to his plan, did not count that position, something to be held onto, but emptied himself of all of the perks of sitting at the right hand of God, continued to be God, but added flesh to himself. 
and became man. I, don't, I just want to think about this with you for a moment. Just use your imaginations with me. Like Jesus took on flesh. And a lot of times when we think about that, we think adult Jesus calling the disciples to be fishers of men. And we kind of leave out that like Jesus was a baby dependent upon someone. Like Jesus was dependent upon Mary to feed him and to clothe him. Like the one who is God, right hand of the Father, submitted himself so that he was dependent upon his creation to take care of him. That's the kind of humility that we're talking about here in Jesus humbling himself. It's not that he took on flesh and appeared as a 32-year-old one day. It's that he took on flesh and was born and was taken care of, had to grow up as a toddler, had to learn to walk, learn to run, learn to read, to write, all of those things, learned it. That's what it means that Jesus took on flesh. So picture this, we sinned against God, we made a name for ourselves, each and every one of us, and God is just. His standard is perfection, and he must uphold that standard at all costs. But he wants a relationship with us. But he can't just ignore the sin, because God is holy, and he will never cease to be holy. And it's not just that we broke his commands and that we've gone astray, but that we threw up our fist in rebellion that we saw what he wanted of us. We saw his love, his grace, and his kindness. Every single day, he brings the sun up for each and every one of us. Each and every day, he provides food and water for us to live, and he gives us grace, and we shake our fist in rebellion and tell him we don't want him. But he sent his son He had compassion. Jesus, the holy, perfect one, took on flesh and humbled himself. Let go of all the privileges, 100% God, 100% man, but grew up, matured, learned, grew into this adult until at the pinnacle of his life, he gave up his life on the cross. The entire way there on his whole journey, he did nothing out of selfishness, nothing out of conceit. We see God regarding the plan of redemption, which the Father had set in place as the most important at each and every turn. He never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. He lived perfectly, making the name of God the Father high and lifted up. And Jesus wasn't merely obedient to the point of becoming the God-man, but obedient to the point of death. Obedient to the point of willingly giving up his life on a cross and watching as the very people that he created and knew every single thing about, every heartbeat, every muscle, every piece of tissue, he spoke them into being as they looked at him and drove nails through his hands and his feet. He looked at them as they shoved a crown down on his head and accused him of being a fake king. Oh, if you're so powerful, then why don't you tell me who just hit you then, Jesus? This creation that he created, he willingly let do that to him. And what's the end result? That God exalted him. That those people, when he could have avoided the cross, when he could have avoided this death in the worst way possible, he was obedient, took the punishment of our sins upon himself, not only the physical torture, but the reality of taking the punishment of our sins upon himself, paying that price in full, he rose again. And we see that all he requires is that we trust in him for salvation 
And we see that God comes through in his promise to exalt the humble in the greatest way possible in the person of Jesus. Now, we see this in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, when Peter quotes Proverbs, that God would exalt the humble, and we see that in Jesus Christ ultimately. God was pleased with Christ's sacrifice, and because of his great humility, he is given the name that is above every name. See, Jesus was, he is, and he is to come. He's existed forever, he will exist forever, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father with a name above all names right now. He's upholding the universe by his words, See this in Hebrews 1, 3. And soon, even those who are in rebellion against them will bow their knees and confess his lordship. Ultimately, Paul comes to the conclusion after looking at Jesus' life in verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this passage, what Paul is saying is this. Be unified as God in his Trinitarian nature is unified. When Christ humbled himself and submitted himself to the plan of God the Father, they had one mission. God had one mission to save his people. And you know what Paul kind of ends this song with that's very interesting to me? Is that regardless of what happens, we're all going to be unified on that day when we all proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. The word confess in Greek can literally be broken down into to say the same. So when we confess our sins, we are saying to God the same thing that he says about our sins, that we have sinned against him. We're in agreement with God about that. And here in this context, to confess that Jesus is Lord is to say that regardless, every person is one day is going to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. They're all going to stay the same. They're going to be unified. But as the church, we are a picture of that here and now. When Paul says that every knee will bow, He's referencing Isaiah 43, 26. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. In the end, what Isaiah said, what Paul repeats, will be true. But we need to recognize there's two realities in this room right now. Maybe you're an unbeliever in this room. You've never repented of your sins and you've never trusted in Jesus. The reality is that God has given you an opportunity here and now by his grace to willingly bow before Jesus and to confess that he is Lord, the son of God who paid for your sins in full, that he is the only way of salvation. There's a willing opportunity now. Many of us in this room have already done that. Many of us in this room are already believers in Jesus Christ. That's why we come together to be reminded of this gospel and to sing praise to his name. And while there's a reality that there are are those who are going to be willing and bow the knee, and that now is the right time to do that, there's also a reality that it's going to be too late one day when people bow their knee. One day it's going to be too late because they never willingly submitted their lives to Christ now in this opportunity when salvation is available. And when they see Christ on the day of judgment and they bow before him and declare him as king and Lord over all, it will be too late They'll say that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they never said it while salvation was available. And at that point, it will be too late. They will have had their chance and it will have passed. So listen to me. If you are an unbeliever in this room here today, do not wait until it's too late. This is more about being saved from hell. This is about experiencing the fullness of life that Christ has made available here and now. 
where you don't have to keep up this facade that you've got everything together, but it's laying down before Christ, recognizing that he is king over all and living an honest, transparent life in the freedom that he brings. I mean, just think about it. Not having to keep up this idea that you've got it all together, but being able to just let go of that idea and trust God and confess that you are broken. There's freedom that comes with that. So don't wait until it's too late. Believers, maybe you recognize that there are some areas in your life, and as we've talked about the last few weeks, I really love this analogy of a wardrobe that Pastor Scott has used, that he sees in Paul, of, of taking off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes. Maybe there's some parts in our life where maybe we're still living to make our own name great. Maybe there are some ways, there are some tasks that you think are below you. Maybe there are some ways that you're constantly trying to, to gnaw, to grab, to try to make yourself look as good as possible and have it all together when things are falling apart at home. Maybe there's, there are some ways that you're trying to get off the hook, that you're just trying to say, well, I wouldn't have sinned if this wouldn't have happened, but listen to me. Put off the old self. There is freedom in confessing sins. Instead of trying to blame someone else, there's freedom in owning it. The Bible says in James chapter 5 that from the confessions of sins, there is healing. I want to encourage you here today, put off the old self, seek to make God's name great. And listen, when we all seek to have that be our end, we will have the same mission. We will be unified and we will engage this community like we never have before. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your freedom and the truthfulness of the gospel that there is freedom made available through Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your goodness, your kindness. And when you could have looked on us and just seen fit to let us die in our sin, you did not, not do that, but in your love, you sent Christ to die for us. God, would you help us live lives confessing that Christ is Lord. It's in your name I pray, amen. Um, the response time is, is gonna be rather simple today. Um, I wanna let you know of a couple avenues that we have. Maybe you see fit to confess your sins before the Lord and you wanna adopt a, a posture of just bowing to your knees like Paul talked about. These stairs are available to you as an altar, as a place to kneel down before the Lord and to confess their sins. Maybe you need others to pray over you you just need to know that people are praying for you. We have a prayer room out these doors to your left. And the, there are people there who are willing to pray with you. But believers, I just really want to keep it simple today. If the Spirit's leading you to respond in another way, be obedient to the Spirit. But to respond today, it's simple. Maybe you need to take time and reflect on this passage, but I want to encourage you that just as Paul broke out in the song, we're going to have an opportunity to sing. And personally, I just think it's as simple as now that we've heard the gospel, we recognize the truthfulness, let's sing together the truthfulness of his word. So as the Lord leads, you respond. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.